This morning we are continuing a series that we started last week, this series that I have called Master Peace. Now today before you we have three paintings and I just want to go through these three paintings with you and, and, and tell you about them. This first one over here is called Don Quixote. It's painted by Picasso. This next one here is called Concentric Circles, painted by a guy named Kadinsky. Lord knows I'm probably not saying that right. And then this last one is entitled Scream, painted by a guy named Munch. How'd you like your name to be Munch? Anyway, so I just I basically want to tell you this morning how I feel about these paintings here. This one right here by Picasso, and arguably most of Picasso's paintings, I'm just going to be honest and say, I don't get it. Okay, I look at this and I think to myself, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty sure I could pull this off. I'm pretty sure that I could, if I was looking at that, I could paint something similar to that. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could handle that. This one here in the middle, I, 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 I just, I don't, I don't get it. Like it's just circles and squares and lovely colors. And some, it's, it just, to me, it just looks like a three-year-old did it. To be honest, like I, I, just, I just don't get it. And then lastly, we have, we have this one here on the end, Scream. And I look at it and I think, well, I, maybe I could appreciate this in an art museum, but I don't think this is something I would ever hang up in my house. You know, it's kind of it's creepy. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't understand why, why people would pay money for these things. But regardless of my opinion, regardless of your opinion, you've got to understand this one right here, the actual painting itself is worth $25 million. This one is worth 30. This one's worth $119 million. And just like these paintings, there might be some people in your life that you just simply don't understand. You don't like them. You don't care for them. Maybe you find them annoying. Maybe you think they're ugly, unlovely, smelly. I mean, the list of reasons why we don't like people is endless. But interestingly enough, regardless of your opinion, it does not dictate the value of others. How valuable you think other people are is simply irrelevant. And we've got to remember that Jesus died for more than just your sins. And because of this, because Christ, we are no longer defined by our actions or our past, but as we live and breathe, all of us, have a savior, which means that all people are redeemable. And this means that you are either my brother and sister in Christ and you deserve to be respected by me, or it means that you are our mission field, that you don't know Christ and that you need to experience the love of Christ and in that you deserve to be loved and respected, regardless of where you find yourself on this list. But not knowing the value, maybe you would not treat these very well. But now that you know, if you were to come in contact with one of these paintings, and let's say it just magically became yours, I'm going to guess that you're going to treat it a little differently now that you know that it's worth millions of dollars. So what I'm saying is, regardless of how hideous these paintings are, I'm going to treat it like a newborn baby because they're valuable. And I think that we have to have that same mentality when we interact with the people around us. I think it's what God's trying to communicate to us in Matthew 22. 
He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. But the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This idea that we've got to learn to, to treat all people with love and respect and dignity. See, last week we learned this, this idea that, that our value is not wrapped up and tied up in who we are and what we can give to the world, but rather our value is all tied up in what God has given to us, his love, his truth, his grace. We, we've come to this understanding that, that you are God's masterpiece. But today we've got to come to the understanding that even though you're God's masterpiece, you're not the only one. That yes, you deserve to be treated like the masterpiece that you are, but so does everyone else. And, and I've got to just take a second and confront this way of feeling because, uh, this way of thinking, because I think sometimes we get, okay, Pastor Will, you're going to sit up here and tell everybody they're special. This is going to be a great message. And, and really what you're saying is, is that when you say that everyone's special, you're really saying that no one is. And if you believe that, then the God that you believe in is, is so small. The God I believe in, the master artist, you are severely underestimating. 1 Corinthians 12, says this. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest are actually the most necessary, the most valuable. Have you ever tried riding a bike without a chain? You're not going to get very far, are you? Have you ever tried maybe steering a ship without the rudder? You're not going to go very far. Have you ever tried riding a horse without the bit in its mouth? The horse is going to go where it wants. And if I'm riding the horse, it's going to go wherever it wants anyways because I don't know what I'm doing. But with, without that small little piece, you could be lost. All right, but 1 Corinthians is telling us, listen, it's those small pieces that are so necessary. We've got to come to the understanding that we are all important pieces and that we're all valuable for very different reasons. And all of us are pieces of the master. We all make up his body. And this simple truth, it, it has to change the way that we interact with other people. We cannot, we cannot claim to be Christians and go around and treat people poorly. We can't claim to be Christians and just watch people suffer, ignore those who need help. As followers of Christ, we've got to be people of action and intention that we ought to treat everyone we interact with with love and respect. So the question is, how do we do that? And there are lots of ways that we can do that, but I want to focus on three that I can give to you this morning. And the first is, is that we've got to learn to see people, see in people what they cannot see in themselves. There is a uh, farmhouse in Toulouse, France, and I'm probably saying that wrong, but it's okay because I don't live in France and I don't care. So how about that? There's a farmhouse that got robbed, okay? Somebody came in and they said, we're going to take everything of value in this house. And they took all kinds of random stuff. They even took like little perfume bottles simply because they thought that they might be able to resell them. But little did they know, they, they walked past this painting in the corner that was dusty and crooked and nasty, and they just thought, well, you know, that's, that's not worth getting. But come to find out, the painting that they passed up on is a lost painting by an artist named Caravaggio, 
And it happens to be worth $171 million. These people robbed the house and took a bunch of worthless junk and left there a masterpiece worth $171 million simply because of the way that it looked. Because sometimes in life, we've got to understand that it takes digging a little bit deeper to try to find the value in things. Jesus did this better than anybody else in history. He, he had a way of not only just seeing the potential in others, but he had a way of, of bringing that out. There's this woman that, that was caught in adultery, and, and he didn't see her for who she was and what she had done, but he saw her and who she could be. When he looked at Paul, he didn't see a murderer. He saw a missionary. When he saw the woman at the well, he didn't see a prostitute. He saw somebody that had a future of sharing his love. When he saw Peter, he didn't see a fisherman, but he saw Petra. He saw the future rock of the church. And he, there's a story in Scripture where Jesus comes upon this, this beach and he sees this man that has been demon-possessed for many years. And y'all, you got to get this. This dude is... This dude is butt naked. He's hassling people. He's in a graveyard. He's just causing problems. Everybody knows who this guy is. They know where he lives. They know all the problems that he causes. And Jesus walks up to him, casts the demons out. And then this is, this is the interaction here in Luke 8. I want to read to you. This is the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, listen, I need you to return home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So, so this guy goes from being demon-possessed to being the hope and the future for this entire Decapolis. Jesus entrusts him with the mission of telling his story. He says, simply go and tell what I have done for you. That's who Jesus saw in him. See, Jesus is constantly giving people that are not worthy a chance to show their worth their true worth, a chance to see that, that, that they can be something so much better with his guidance. And, and I understand today that we are not Jesus, but, but can't we at least point people to him? See, Jesus made a choice to invest and to invite in people. See, invest and invite is one of the main focal points of our church. That's the kind of church that we try to be. That's the kind of culture that we want to create here. It's a bunch of people that are investing and inviting in others. And when we say invite, it's not about inviting somebody to, to be here in these, in these pews and to sit with us and hopefully they'll give us a little bit of money. No, when we say we want you to invite somebody to church, what we're saying is, is we want you to invite people into your life, to live with them. What, what, what screams value more than I want to spend time with you? When we say invest, we understand that, that investing is, is a risk. I mean, it's the same when we invest our money. We, we understand that when we invest money, there is a chance, whether it be big or small, that we could lose all of that money. Yet we invest anyways because we see it as worth the risk. And so what I want to communicate to you today is that people are worth the risk. People are worth investing in. Aren't you glad that Jesus took the risk to invest in you? Aren't you glad that Jesus took your debt to the cross so that you could be free? How do we do that for other people? I mean, really think about that. 
Because I think that answer is different for every single one of us. How do we do that for the people around us? How do we invest and invite them to be a part of our lives? I know for me, it means I take all of the extra time that I have and I pour it into some of the students at MACU, some of the students that want to be uh, pastors and future ministry leaders. I want to try to get them where they can be. I want to try to bring out in them the value that I see in them, to create in them a future where they can go and do ministry with other people. I don't have to do that. That's not part of my job here, but that's what I was created for. That's how I can see the value other people don't see in themselves. But, but what is it for you? I know that I am here today because there was people in my life that did that for me. I remember sitting in a hotel room at a convention when I was in middle school, and I had four pastors that were in that room with me. I, re I remember this so vividly. It was Chip Taylor, Scott Arnold, Philip Woody, Bizan Ganey, all sitting in this room looking at me. And they said, Will, all four of us see that someday that you've got the giftedness to be a youth pastor. And I looked at them and I said, you're out of your minds. I said, I am a pastor's kid. That's not what I want to do. I see what it's like from my dad. I want nothing to do with that. But if it wasn't for them to look into my life and see in me what I couldn't see in myself, I don't know if I'd be here today. That's what we got to do for others, to see in them what they cannot see in themselves. And this leads us right to the next point. We can't just see it. We also have to speak that truth to them. We've got to learn to be people that speak encouragement in every opportunity that we have. Uh, I don't know, maybe at first I would have said that this was more of a curse, but it has turned out to be one of the greatest blessings in parenthood. Stephanie's dad, Ken, is a marriage and family therapist. And so he always has given us these, these great little things about how to be better, better parents and, and just kind of all the research that's, that's coming out on how you're supposed to effectively parent today. And there's, there's one thing that really stuck out to me. One thing that we've really tried hard to do is, is he said, you should never tell your child that they've been a bad girl. You should always, when they do something, say, see, you made a bad choice, but you're not a bad girl. But can you imagine what that does to us, those words, when you constantly hear over and over again, you're a bad girl, you're a bad girl, you're a bad girl. What happens? You end to believe that. You begin to believe, well, I guess that's just who I am. I'm a bad girl. Say, no, no, no. No, Malin, you're a really, really good girl, but today you just made a bad choice. We have to be so careful with the words that we choose to, to speak into the lives of the people around us. That's why Ephesians 4 says this. So put away your lies and speak the truth to one another because we are all part of one another. Don't let even one rotten word seep out of your mouth, but instead offer only fresh words that build people up when they need it the most. That way your good words will communicate grace to those who hear them. Y'all, this is simple. We, we get this idea that rotten words rot. But fresh words encourage. They build people up. Is it really that difficult for us to choose to be kind? Stephanie did this experiment and, and when she was in college, and it blew my mind. I, when she first told me about this, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I had, to, I had to see it to believe it. But they did this thing where they, they took these mason jars, and they put water and rice in each jar, and they, she labeled them differently, and she was supposed to love one jar, and she was supposed to hate one jar, and she did that by speaking to the jar. I mean, we're talking about rice in a jar here, folks, okay? 
after like three or four days, the rice in the jar that had been spoken hate to had begun to rot. When the rice in the other jar that had not been spoken, that had been spoken nice to was still as fresh and nice as the first day that it was put in there. And I hear that, and then I think to myself, if that's what it's doing to rice in a mason jar, can you imagine what that does to our souls? People do not need more negativity in this life. Man, y'all, mama was right when she looked at us and said, listen, you don't got anything nice to say, then don't say a word. And we've got to understand that this is not, not just with our words, but it's how we say things. I know y'all have heard that because I heard that a ton when I was growing up. My mom's like, it's not what you said. It's how you said it, boy. And sometimes it's just about our body language and the looks that we give. You guys understand this. We can communicate so much without even opening our mouths. And is what you're communicating, is what you're saying, is it building people up or is it rotting their spirit? I don't know, you guys may not believe this, it's fine, but when I was younger, I was, I was quite a bit bigger. Uh, at, at my highest in high school, I, I topped out at about 298. And you guys understand this, man. When you're in middle school and you're a bigger kid, you just get made fun of. Like, that's just what happens. Like, I got told that you're, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat, you're fat. I heard that over and over and over again. That's, that's all I heard. And then it, it got to the point where nobody even needed to tell me that anymore because that's just what I believed in my heart. And so when I got to college, I, I went on a mission trip to India and I lost 20 pounds there, mainly because I don't think I ate while I was there. And then I came back and, and I did this fasting thing with one of my friends and I ended up losing almost 90 pounds within like three or four months. And every time I, I would look in the mirror and I would see myself and, I, and no matter how skinny I got, all I saw was your fat. You're fat, you're fat, you're fat. Because that's the repetition of words that have been spoken over me and over me and over me. And I say that to say that we've got to be a people that speak the repetition of love into others' lives over and over and over again. I don't know if anybody else does this, but sometimes, you know, I, I love my wife so much. I think she's so beautiful. I think she's the greatest mom on the planet. But I don't always speak those words to her. I think about it all the time, but I don't always communicate that. We've, we've got to find ways. We, we've got to create avenues where we become people, where we're communicating those truths to people, where we're using that repetition to build them up and, and let them know who they are. What has been sealed with repetition has to be unsealed with repetition. We've got to learn to sit in the presence of the one who says, I love you, you're mine. You're precious. You're my masterpiece. And then we've got to replicate that to others. Christ made a way for his spirit to be in us so that we could stand in the gap for others, that it could be our words and the repetition of our words that encourages and uplifts people. Psalm 19:14 says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Man, this verse is really, really, really good accountability. Every morning when you wake up, you can make the commitment to say, God, I want my words and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable to you. When you go to sleep at night, you can sit down and you think to yourself, was that me today? Were my words uplifting? 
Was the meditation of my heart, was that acceptable to you, Jesus? And if it wasn't, show, show me where it wasn't and help me to make amends for those things. Is what I'm communicating, uplifting others, is it acceptable in your sight? We've got to let the truth of others' values change the way that we speak and we have to use every opportunity to encourage. Let me give you one more. We've got to learn to be the tangible love that people haven't experienced. How many of you, I want you to think of a time where you've had an experience and it changed your life forever. This one time I'm I'm walking in the grocery store. I'm one of those people that I just get like a hankering for cereal. I don't know if that happens to anybody else. And I'm, I'm walking through the cereal aisle, and I notice they got this s'mores cereal. I'm like, I like s'mores. I think I'll try this. I went home and tried that box of cereal, and it changed my life forever. I, I can't even walk in the cereal aisle because I want to buy five boxes of it, okay? I, just, I love it so much. I had a roommate in college that handed me my first Batman comic, And I read it, and I I fell in love. And if you go into my office, you'll think, this guy is nuts. I've got 200 Batmobiles hanging up on my wall. But it was all that moment, that roommate that handed me that that comic book. It was that experience that changed my life forever. You, You guys understand this. Like, facts are great, but we are definitely people who live based off of our our experiences. Like, I love, this is time to confess, I go to Fuzzy's way more than a normal person should. I love that place. Every time I go there, I don't feel like I pay too much. It's always delicious, and it's, it's pretty fast. Like, I, I, I've never had a bad experience there, so I keep going back. And then uh, I went to, to Pie 5 one time, and I'm a pizza guy. I went there one time, and the crust was so hard, I thought I was going to break my teeth. So I've never been back there, and I'm sure that maybe that's not been your experience there, and I'm, that's, that's good for you, but what I'm trying to get you to understand is, is that because of my experiences, it has changed the way that I live. I believe in God because I've encountered God to be real in my life. I don't, I don't even, sometimes I wonder if it's even pointless to debate the existence of God with people that don't believe, because you've either experienced him to be real or you haven't. Like, I believe in God because of of a moment with my mom in the van when I was five years old and I committed my life to Christ. In that hotel room with those youth pastors at at age 12, when I was in college, I had a a professor, Steve Seaton, that that worked his way into my life and showed me how to read the Bible. At a campfire at a youth camp that I was leading when I was 23 years old, I experienced God to be real. When Malin was born when I was 26 and I held her for the first time, I experienced God's love in that moment. Those are the reasons I believe, not because I think the Bible is reliable. You know the one thing all of those things have in common is people. I experienced his love with and through other people. Man, I I sit down and I think, who, who would I be without my parents? Who would I be without my wife? Who would I be without my godly friends? Who would I be without those mentors in my life? And is not my life purpose to go and do likewise, to make disciples, to replicate that same love that has been given to me, to give it to others, to, to replicate that same experience that I've had to try, to try to make it possible for others to experience God in that way too. Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says this. 
You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you something new. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain to the just and to the unjust. Man, this is, this is not just the people who love me. This is that we are to love the people that we see as our enemy. And Jesus uses the word enemy, but I really believe in my heart of hearts that we only have one enemy and his name is Satan. And I know that sometimes people can seem like the enemy and act like the enemy, but the truth is, is that they're just victims of the enemy. We, we've got to change the way that we see other people. Loving our enemy is only hard if we don't understand why they are the enemy or why they seem like the enemy. But if we would change the way that we see them, that we would see them for victims of Satan, we would change the way that we treat them. Jesus is calling for us to love all people, even those that are difficult to love, for us to follow in his footsteps. He says, when you guys were sinners, I died for you. I just want you to take that love and replicate it. First John 4, 19 says, we loved because he first loved us. And it's not in our nature to love like this. It's only through the power of Christ in us that we can choose to love people first, that we can choose to point people to Jesus. God says, let judgment and vengeance be mine. And I think what God is saying here is that I don't want you to focus on that. I want you to focus on loving people. And y'all, religion in the past has not done well with this. We have not done well loving others that sin differently than us. People with different life views, people of the LGBT community, we've not loved them well. And maybe we've not been a part of that problem, but I'm going to choose to be a part of the solution. Because Jesus was not a problem of my sin, but he chose to be my solution. So I'm just following him. And here's my question. What good does it do and what good has it done to shove their law in people's faces? You know, when I was a kid, my parents told me not to cuss. So you know what I did? I didn't cuss around them. Okay, I'm just being honest. But it wasn't until I understood, I, as I continued to grow up and mature, I, I began to understand why my parents were asking me to do that. See, they loved me through that whole process until I understood why they chose to live like that. And then I said, okay, that's what I want to do too. See, we've got to learn to love people first because it is love first that even gives us an opportunity to open up about a conversation about how somebody's living their life. Listen, people they don't need more hate and negativity. They're getting plenty of that from the rest of the world. We've got to be people that love first. And I'm not saying that we've got to be people that are accepting and, and tolerant of sin. I'm just saying that we've got to love first. But this kind of love, it's, it's not easy. This kind of love takes turning the other cheek. It takes being resilient and constant. It takes the willingness to walk the extra mile. It takes loving people when they don't deserve it. The choosing to be kind when really you want to be angry. The willingness to be uncomfortable. The willingness to be embarrassed. The willingness to give grace like God has given us grace. Because you know what? I, I, 
You know, sometimes I think people just get caught up in making bad choices because they don't understand how valuable they are. I mean, can't you relate with that? Can't you relate with the idea of, of reaching out to something to try to make life bearable when, it, when, it, when life's not good? You know, the crazy thing about this, uh, Malin has this uh, game on the iPad. And it's like a wordsmith game. It's supposed to help her like, understand how to read better and, and how to spell and all these things. Can I just tell you that I am a champion at that game? Okay. It is like super easy. Like I am fantastic at that game, right? You know why? Because I'm an adult. I'd better be fantastic at that game, right? Like she's a kid. Of course, it's a, a more challenging for her. She, she hasn't grown up. She doesn't know better yet, but she, she'll learn. I mean, the same is true of, of the non-Christians in our life. Why, why are we always expecting them to, to, to be places where they shouldn't even be? Like, can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if I left this building right now, went into the nursery, and started yelling at crying babies? You would think I was out of my mind. But we're doing that same thing to people who aren't believers. They don't know any better. And what do you do with a crying baby? You hold them. You love them. You try to figure out what's wrong. That's what we have to do with people who don't know God. We've got to be love that they've never experienced before. Real love is empathy in the face of misunderstanding. Real love is respect in the face of disunity. Respect not based on actions or giftedness or money or smarts or looks. Respect simply because they are masterpieces hanging in the same gallery that we are hanging in. And never forget that how you treat others can change the way they see themselves. I just want to end today by saying, don't wait. I don't know where you are. I I don't know what's going on in your life. But I, I just want you to think for a couple minutes. Think of one or two people, maybe at church, work, friend, enemy, home, wherever, that maybe you need to send a phone call to or write a letter or send a text. Maybe you just need to pray and ask God to show you or give you an opportunity. And maybe like me, maybe there's some of you that need to speak the words that you've left unspoken. But today, I hope that you would choose to try to be people that love others, even when it's hard. To love them like nobody else has loved them before. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, today is not about shame. It's not about looking at our life and saying, oh, messed that up, messed that up, not doing that good. Might as well give up. Lord, for me today, it's just, it's an encouragement to say, Lord, you've given me life. And as I walk out these doors and as I still have life, you're giving me more and more and new opportunities to be your hands and your feet to not regret the opportunities that I've missed in the past, but to be smart about trying to reach the opportunities that you're going to give me in the future. Lord, I just ask that you just help us to love and to love first and to choose just to be positive. And this, this is hard for me. I tend to be a negative person. I challenge my heart. 
as we walk from this place to just see people differently and to treat them differently for no other reason than they are your creation and that you place value in them that I don't understand. Father God, go with us from this place. Help us to be the people that you've created us to be. And Father God, I pray for everybody in this room, everybody that's thinking about that one or two persons in their life. Lord, I just ask and pray for an opportunity. Lord, that you would lay on their heart somebody that just needs to be loved, maybe somebody that they've given up on. Lord, and I know that sometimes, man, investing is hard because we can invest in somebody and then it can blow up in our face. But help us to remember that people are worth it. We love you. We praise you. Thank you, Father. Go with us today. In your holy name, amen.